Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the RBC podcast, Veterinary Science on the Move. My name is Mark Cleesby and today I'm talking with Professor Caroline Wheeler-Jones about her interests in the vascular endothelium and in particular mediators that may play a role in protection from cardiovascular accidents. Okay Caroline, thanks very much for joining us today. Your work mainly centres on the endothelium and its role potentially in uh, heart attack and strokes and that sort of disease. Can you perhaps start off by telling us what are the, the sort of main defects that give rise to uh, the sort of cardiovascular accident, heart attack, stroke, that sort of thing? Mm-hmm. There isn't actually a main cause of these. It's actually multifactorial. Mm. But I suppose if one had to say what's the main defect, one would say a blockage. So, for example, a blockage to the coronary arteries is well known to cause a, a heart attack. In the case of stroke, obviously, it's a blockage in a different artery or different blood vessel leading to the brain. But the upshot is that the blood can no longer get through to that tissue. The tissue becomes what we call ischemic. And as a result of that, ultimately, the tissue will die, leading to an infarct. So people who've had a heart attack will have some sort of infarct in their heart tissue if they've survived that. Mm-hmm. So and a bit of dead heart, basically. That's right, a bit of dead heart, exactly. But the, the, the factors that lead to this ultimate defect, if you like, are varied and many, and not always the same in, in individuals. But probably what is the major underlying initiating factor in all the events that lead ultimately to these rather detrimental effects is something that we call endothelial dysfunction. Now, endothelial cells are the cells that line all of the blood vessels and the heart and normally will be sitting there quite happily producing lots of factors that help to keep the blood flowing and not clotting unless Mm -hmm. it's appropriate. They produce lots of protective factors that keep the blood vessels appropriately dilated. In other words, there's enough blood flow getting to the tissues of a particular organ at a particular time, and so on. So the endothelium normally, in a healthy individual, is what we call antithrombotic and anti-inflammatory. In other words, it's stopping inflammatory cells from the blood getting across it and into the underlying tissue and causing inflammatory reactions in there. Okay, so endothelial dysfunction, as I've said, is multifactorial. Um, But essentially what that means is that instead of producing lots of protective factors, the endothelium becomes exposed to something, and I'll come on to that a little bit later, that makes the cells produce factors that are pro-inflammatory and pro-thrombotic. So a good example of something that goes wrong, if you like, in endothelial dysfunction is that normally endothelial cells produce a lot of something called nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator. Mm -hmm. So it will keep the blood vessels patent. When the endothelial cells are dysfunctional, these cells no longer produce appropriate levels of nitric oxide. And because of that, one of the consequences is that the vessels 
become less dilated than normal and become more constricted, which of course is something that will lessen the amount of blood flow to a particular tissue. Okay, so a narrower blood vessel is more likely to attract a clot. Almost certainly, Mm. yes. So that will be one of the, the major factors. And there are lots and lots of different mechanisms that can result in endothelial cells producing less nitric oxide than they should be producing. Okay, so the importance of the endothelium in, in the normal body is really to, uh, to receive signals from the blood and then uh, instruct the, the, the smooth muscle around it to constrict or, or, or relax accordingly. That's absolutely right. Right, okay. Absolutely right. So what are the, the sort of main circumstances where this endothelial dysfunction or damage to the endothelium, which is you know, the first stage, I guess, then in developing a a clot and and a stroke. Uh, What what are the circumstances when this actually happens? Okay, well, something that most people will be aware of, for example, is that saturated fat in the diet Mm -hmm. can lead to heart attacks. And there's quite a lot of evidence that eating too much saturated fat can predispose to these sorts of events. And we do know that At least one of the reasons why that can happen is that saturated fats, when they're carried around the body, can have detrimental effects on the endothelial cells directly. There are lots of other reasons as well, but but saturated fat is one of those factors that most people will be aware of as being not very good for the vasculature. Okay, so what are the the mechanisms whereby this is actually occurring? This is through... um, a sort of direct effect on the endothelium, or is it through inflammatory cells? Or Well, it can be certainly multi-pronged attack. So one of the effects of saturated fats on the endothelium is to do exactly what I explained earlier in terms of dysfunction, which is to reduce nitric oxide production. Our group, for example, has been looking at how saturated fats, when they're incorporated into lipoproteins that we call chylomicron remnants, how these factors that contain lots of saturated fatty acids directly affect vascular endothelium. And essentially what these lipoproteins can do is that they have very fast-acting mechanisms whereby they can send signals into the cell which will reduce nitric oxide production, not by affecting the levels of the enzyme that produce it, but by changing the molecular signals that control enzymatic activity. And this can happen fairly rapidly. We don't need to expose the endothelial cells to these lipoproteins for very long to be able to see these sorts of detrimental effects. And if you use lipoproteins that contain fats that we consider to be more beneficial. For example, we've all heard of omega-3 fatty acids, that, mm-hmm. and fish oil contains a lot of these yeah. polyunsaturated fatty acids. If we use lipoproteins that contain a lot of these omega-3 fatty acids, these do not reduce nitric oxide production and actually switch on in the cells a lot of good signalling mechanisms that help to keep the cells healthy. So one prong of attack is by directly targeting the endothelial cells themselves. Another prong, I guess, would be if 
good factors or bad factors directly targeted, as you say, the inflammatory cells that we know interact with the endothelium directly. So circulating monocytes, for example, mm -hmm. would be another cell type that could be directly affected by, for example, saturated fatty acids or by other pro-inflammatory factors circulating in the blood. So the combined effect of these factors acting directly on endothelial cells together with their direct effects on inflammatory cells will ensure that inflammation proceeds to a greater extent and to a, at a faster rate than would be seen in, in a normal vascular endothelium. Okay, so if you've got a situation where the uh, endothelium in the blood vessel is starting to uh, malfunction and you're, mm -hmm. you're getting monocytes, sort of white blood cells coming to the area, mm -hmm. and this is sort of setting up a sort of inflammatory process in, in the endothelium, is that correct? That's correct, yes. So in order for the cells to participate in inflammation, they need to get across the endothelial cell layer. And so a lot of the signalling events inside the cells and between the two types of cells, if you like, ensure that the endothelial cells themselves become inflamed and that they change their architecture such that the inflammatory cells can creep through the cell junctions. Uh -huh. And these would normally be quite nicely packed together, the endothelial cells, in a monolayer lining the blood vessel, but we know that during inflammation, gaps appear between the endothelial cells, which allow monocytes and other cells to escape from the circulation, get across the endothelium into the extracellular matrix that underlies the endothelium, and they can have produce all sorts of pro-inflammatory factors in that environment that will affect not only the endothelial cells, but also the underlying smooth muscle cells, if there are any. For example, there will be lots of smooth muscle cells in the coronary artery mm -hmm. vessels that get blocked. But in capillaries, of course, there, there won't be any smooth muscle cells. So it really depends where this transendothelial migration that we call it takes place uh -huh. as to exactly what, what effects will go on. But if we stick with the heart attack side of things, effectively those cells getting into that subendothelial matrix will then mean that they will start to take up lipid mm -hmm. and eventually they will form what we call foam cells. And these are basically just, they look like foam and that's because they contain lots and lots of lipid. And when they are in that state, they can then be called macrophages and they will start to produce another whole battery of chemical mediators that will essentially exacerbate the inflammation that's going on in the vessel wall. Right, so it's sort of positive it, feedback. It is, it is a vicious circle situation, definitely. Yes. Okay, so this is the sort of overall pathological phenomenon you're mm -hmm. studying. What sort of experimental systems can you use to look at this? We can use a, an awful lot of different types of systems. One of the major ones that we use in our lab is cultured endothelial cells. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously these are cells that are no longer in blood vessels and so it is an artificial system. But we are reasonably lucky in that we can 
use human endothelial cells for a lot of these studies. And one of the major models that's used worldwide and for many years now is human umbilical vein endothelial cells. So we can collect, with ethical permission, human umbilical veins mm-hmm. from various hospitals and we use essentially what's a, a technique of collagenase digestion to isolate the endothelial cells or strip away the endothelial cells from the underlying extracellular matrix in the umbilical vein and we can then take those cells and culture them in vitro and look at how they behave in response to various pro-inflammatory or other mediators and it's a very versatile system. For, for endothelial cell biologists it's, it's very useful that we can grow in culture our cells in a very similar way to the way that they are in vivo, i.e. they will grow as a monolayer. The more they grow, the more packed the tissue culture flask gets, um, the more cell-cell contact there is, and eventually there will be so much cell-cell contact that there will be no leakage, if you like, across the endothelial cell monolayer. And they are cells that are what we call contact-inhibited. So once they all contact each other, they will stop growing and behave like a monolayer. Mm -hmm. So we can look at them under monolayer conditions, which is a very normal and useful way of studying them, because that would reflect what's going on in, in a normal endothelial monolayer in vivo. But we can also look at them when they are damaged. So, for example, we can wound the endothelial cell monolayer Uh and look at changes in expression of various genes in the signalling mechanisms that regulate the expression of these genes and so on. So, using endothelial cells in culture is an extremely powerful tool that we and many other biologists use. And as with most in vitro systems, of course, they are never ideal. They are never mm. going to mimic the in vivo situation. Exactly. But now it is possible to get hold of quite a lot of different types of human endothelial cells. Um, and these are com- some of these are commercially available now. So we can compare in vitro, for example, the behaviour of microvascular endothelial cells with those from much larger vessels such as the human umbilical vein or even the human aorta. And there are really quite significant differences between how these two types of cells behave, not surprisingly, because the two vessel types have different roles in the body. I I guess presumably the traditional use of umbilical vein has been because that's really been the only vessel that has been readily available from from humans on the basis it's it's not something that's required obviously after birth. Absolutely and it still is the main model Mm -hmm. for that very reason but of course there are disadvantages to any model and one of the criticisms of that model is that it's venous so really one is only looking at what's going on in on the venous side of the right. circulation as opposed to the arterial side, and that it is actually not an adult vessel, which of course it isn't. It, the umbilical cord is, is fetally uh-huh. derived, so it's actually fetal. But it's such a well-characterised model 
that it's very well known to display many properties, some of which are characteristic of microvascular cells and some of macrovascular, and certainly the cells express when they're in early passage, i.e. When, when they are very freshly isolated and used very quickly, they express all of the important molecules and genes that we would expect human endothelial cells, adult endothelial cells, to express. Okay, so what are the, uh, the genes or signaling pathways that seem to be involved in this uh, dysfunction of the endothelium that's uh, predisposing to uh, heart attacks and so on? The literature on human endothelial cell function is enormous. So if one goes into PubMed, for example, and has a look at what types of signaling pathways can be switched on in those cells, you could go on forever with the list of important ones. But classically, many, many groups have been looking at pro-inflammatory signaling in those cells. In other words, signaling that will lead to the generation of pro-inflammatory mediators and increases in gene expression that reflect increased inflammation in the cells. Uh -huh. So some of the signaling pathways that we know are important for generating those responses in endothelial cells will include, for example, the NF-kappa-B pathway, which is a, a well-described, very well-known pro-inflammatory signaling pathway that regulates the expression of a whole host of genes, not only in endothelial cells but in many other cell types, that we know are involved in inflammation. Mm -hmm. And we know, for example, that if we expose our cells to an inflammatory mediator, such as thrombin, for example, which is a serine protease enzyme involved in coagulation, we are able to switch on NF-kappa-B signaling very effectively, and we will also switch on gene expression downstream of those signaling pathways uh, a little bit later. And NF-kappa-B isn't the only signaling pathway that regulates gene expression, obviously, but it's a good example because we're talking about inflammation. And one of the genes that we've been interested in for some time downstream of NF-kappa-B signaling is cyclooxygenase expression. So, for example, when we expose ourselves to inflammatory mediators or to growth factors that we know will be able to make the cells multiply and repair themselves after damage, uh, we can see a very huge increase in expression of a protein called cyclooxygenase 2, mm -hmm. which is a an inducible form of cyclooxygenase. What's the important role that a COX is actually playing in uh, the endothelium? Then? Mm. This is an enzyme that has had very bad press over the years. Um, and that's mainly because it's usually been associated with actions on the cells that promote chronic inflammation. Now, chronic inflammation is a bad thing, mm -hmm. whereas inflammation that occurs acutely over a short period is is rather beneficial and necessary for tissue first repair. Phase of healing. Yeah. Yes. So that would be the first phase of healing. In a non-healing situation, for example, one could imagine that 
cyclooxygenase 2 expression would be very persistent mm -hmm. and inflammation would be unresolved. And that's why we want to target enzymes like that to try and reduce the inflammation that's associated with chronic disease. Cyclooxygenase 2 is coupled to several downstream enzymes. And one of the most important of these enzymes is an enzyme called prostacyclin synthase. Mm -hmm. Now, prostacyclin synthase ensures that cyclooxygenase, the cyclooxygenase product that's eventually produced will be prostacyclin. So in a cell that, that has an awful lot of prostacyclin synthase expressed, cyclooxygenase activity increases will lead to lots of prostacyclin production. Not all cells will have a lot of prostacyclin synthase, but normal vascular endothelial cells do. So probably the major downstream product of cyclooxygenase 2 activity in healthy blood vessels is prostacyclin. Now, prostacyclin, whereas it can participate in normal acute inflammation by increasing permeability and allowing some of those cells that we talked about earlier to get in and try and repair the tissue, mm -hmm. it also has a lot of other important actions. So, Prostacyclin will act directly on a number of other cell types to cause protection, if you like. So one good example of that is that prostacyclin can bind to receptors on vascular smooth muscle and can stop vascular smooth muscle cells from proliferating. Now in disease states, particularly in atherosclerosis that we were talking about earlier, vascular smooth muscle cells change their phenotype from being a rather quiescent cell type to being very proliferative. Mm -hmm. And that's partly what increases the size of the vessel wall and helps to impinge on the lumen of the blood vessel. Uh -huh. Prostacyclin is a very powerful anti-proliferative factor for vascular smooth muscle cells. So that's one important protective role of prostacyclin. Another protective role is its ability to bind to receptors on the platelet surface. Now platelets are very small fragments of cells produced by megakaryocytes that are extremely important for blood clotting. So they're important for blood clotting in normal management of the circulation in normal individuals. But they're also important in disease because they can become overreactive, if you like, and overactivated and lead to too much clotting. So prostacyclin is very good at limiting that, as is nitric oxide. So products downstream of cyclooxygenase 2 activity have important protective roles to play in the vasculature. Okay, so depending on how or which isoform of uh, COX is activated, mm -hmm. these ca it can actually have a beneficial effect or a, mm -hmm. a, a more unfortunate effect, mm -hmm. if you like, on the, on mm -hmm. the blood vessels. Mm -hmm. So how, uh, how is this uh, 
activation different under the different circumstances? And, and for example, does this give us an, op an opening to actually target this enzyme therapeutically? Mm -hmm. Well, yes, this, this enzyme actually is target, targeted therapeutically. So classically, cyclooxygenase exists in two forms. So cyclooxygenase 1, as it's called, is often termed the housekeeping cyclooxygenase enzyme that's fairly ubiquitously expressed, i.e. it's present in all cell types. As I said earlier, cyclooxygenase 2 is inducible, so in many cell types it doesn't exist until the cells are stimulated, in which case its synthesis is switched on through changes in gene expression through a whole range of signaling pathways that we've talked about. And a few, many years ago now, it was suggested that because it was being recognised that cyclooxygenases had different roles to play in different tissues, that we might be better off targeting cyclooxygenase 2, mm -hmm. which would cut out, if you like, the nasty pro-inflammatory role of cy the cyclooxygenase pathway, but keep the housekeeping role intact. And so a lot of drug companies pushed forward in producing a whole range of selective drugs that target cyclooxygenase 2 in preference over cyclooxygenase 1. And this ultimately led to the development of a whole family of drugs that we call the coccyps that are very widely used in a range of inflammatory disorders, um, including, for example, arthritis, mm -hmm. where they're very effective. But over the years, it became apparent that there may be a risk associated with the use of some of these drugs and that risk was a cardiovascular risk so one of these drugs eventually as a result of all these studies a drug called Viox was pulled from the market because this risk was clearly very apparent and so there has been a lot of recent interest in looking more closely at exactly what this type of drug is affecting mm -hmm. in blood vessels because the reason for this increased risk, and it's an increased risk of thrombosis, I should add, i.e. an increased risk of events that lead to heart attacks or strokes. Yeah. So understanding what cyclooxygenase 2 is doing in blood vessels, i.e. what its functional roles are, and what drugs that target COX-2, what effects these drugs actually have, are both very important questions to be asking, really, to allow in the future development of more appropriate anti-inflammatory therapies. So although, as I said earlier, cyclooxygenase 2 has had bad press as a pro-inflammatory gene, it's very well coupled to production of prostacycline, which has a really important vasculoprotective properties. So when we use drugs in humans that selectively target cyclooxygenase 2 activity, it may not always be a good thing. And it could be that one of the reasons 
not the reason, but certainly one of the contributing factors that provides risk in the use of drugs like Vioxx is that we are getting rid of a vasculoprotective function in the vessels. And in somebody who's got disease, that protective function is possibly much more important because it's switched on in the face of a lot of pro-inflammatory nasty events that are going on in the cells, and it's a safety mechanism. And if we get rid of that safety mechanism by using a drug that might have very beneficial effects in terms of inflammation per se, we may well be getting rid of one of the good things that's going on in the cells and that is mediated by increased COX-2 activity. Okay, so it looks like at least some information from existing drugs is going to push the research forward and uh, hopefully establish uh, the importance of particular enzyme isoforms in in the endothelium. That's right. Um, I guess there's obviously still some way to go before we have a a wonder drug which will uh, be specific then to targeting the beneficial effects in the endothelium. Yes, and... There's a lot of work going on at the minute. We're doing some, lots of other people are doing it as well. But having a look to see exactly what the protective mechanisms are in the vasculature that keep endothelial cells happy. So there are a number of key pathways that we know are important. And one of those, for example, would be activation of a kinase called AKT which leads to protective signalling in endothelial cells and a number of other cell types. Another one would be activation of a transcription factor known as NERF2. And NERF2 is a a general antioxidant transcription factor and, again, will ensure that the cells are appropriately signalled, if you like, to handle stress, particularly oxidant stress that we know is bad for many cells. So there's a huge amount of research going on into these areas. And ultimately, we know that drugs that do have benefit, for example, the the statins, they have direct effects on endothelial cells that have nothing to do with their ability to lower cholesterol, Mm. which is their primary mechanism of action. But they have effects on the cells to upregulate, if you like, some of these protective signalling pathways and downregulate some of the pro-inflammatory signalling pathways. So it may be that ultimately we'll need to have uh, uh, some sort of multi-pill that's going to be able to get rid of the very pro-inflammatory signalling events that are going on in the cells at the same time as upregulating the protective pathways. So I think ultimately... This is a long way off, but certainly the statins are one group of drugs that seem to be able to to do this. But statins, of course, aren't useful in all patients, and they don't have benefit in all patients. So clearly combinations of therapies are possibly going to be the way forward. Still, uh, obviously, a long way to go with this, and uh, as you suggest... The chances are it's going to be a case of targeting multiple signaling pathways or genes Mm. to really comprehensively tackle the problem of Mm. atherosclerosis. Mm. But uh, it's very encouraging to hear that there's a lot of work going into this Mm. now. And Caroline, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. And once again, thanks very much for your kind attention. 
We'll be back again next time, and I hope very much you'll be listening. In the meantime, if you've got any comments or suggestions with regard to the podcast, feel free to email us at podcast at rbc.ac.uk. Thanks for listening.